Welcome to the Breakout Ideas Podcast, part of the Breakout Investors Network. The general idea behind this platform is to discuss events and themes that move markets and therefore are of interest to members of the community. But first, a disclaimer, no one on this call is an investment advisor and no one is providing investment advice. This podcast is for information purposes only. Before investing in any company stock, you must do your own research. Joining me today to talk about recent events and a few companies is uh, one of our favorites, Rob Spivey of Valens and Altimetry. Uh, Rob, could you just give us a minute again on uh, what your organizations do? Yeah, of course, Scott. Thanks as always for having me on. Uh, you know, the focus of what we do here at Valens Research and Altimetry is around really uniform accounting and, and trying to uncover real and undervalued names by looking at what real corporate performance evaluation is and then overlaying what real fundamental research we can get to understand and put that in context to identify the best ideas we can to give our uh, our readers and our clients that performance. Yeah, it's a, it's a form, it's a specific form of sell-side research where you really get into the fundamentals, the financial metrics of companies. Is that fair? That's an exactly right way to say it. And the only, then what we do once we get that is, right, that helps us get what we call better signals, right? In essence of saying, hey, we can really understand which companies look undervalued or overvalued. And then we overlay the other tools that we have around management compensation, around management communication, and when we can see conviction or deception from management and everything else to really paint a full picture to make sure that, you know, we're identifying names that aren't value traps when we see undervalued names, but really actually are, are on the cusp of having inflection. All right. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the idea is to talk about the market uh, generally, uh, and then uh, finish the uh, uh, call today with with some specific names. So it's been a tough couple of weeks. I re- re- remember that I think it was the week before last, they were talking about it being seven weeks in a row down and eight weeks uh, in a row would have been a record. Uh, what is your take on what's happening in the market right now? Uh, obviously the Fed, but but is there something else that people should be cognizant of what inning are we in with respect to the market digesting the new realities of the, uh, and uh, what uh, should we be looking for uh, for the rest of the year? Um, that's a big mandate, and I'll try to I'll try to get specific, and we'll develop the conversation, you know, as uh, as you speak. Yeah, of course, absolutely. You know, I think that it's it's a relevant thing to highlight that the market rolled over the last two days as we again saw a big spike in rates um, in terms of the 10 year and the five year both moving up, you know, 10 year moving up, call it, you know, basically 15 basis points or so. And the five year moving similarly, because, you know, one of the things that we talked about talking about with our clients is this idea of, you know, there's this fear of, you know, basically this idea of trend, right? And so, human beings just by nature are very bad at understanding rate of change, right? Deceleration, acceleration of trends. What we focus on is we just extrapolate everything linearly, right? Because it's the easiest thing for all of us to do. And so for, you know, you look from basically the second half of last year until, until now, and really until April, and you look at interest rates and not, not in terms of what the Fed is doing, but literally the market interest rate in terms of the five-year and 10-year and what the market is pricing in in terms of where interest rates are going, we saw a basically 250 basis point bump, 225 basis points, sorry, bump in basically the five-year and 10-year, which are the really good indicators for almost where you should start with in terms of your cost of capital for, um, you know, for companies um, over the span of basically 10 months, which is staggeringly fast and which is a big reason why everybody started to panic because you start to stack that on top of obviously inflation being on all-time highs, 
And then you stack that on top of the fact that you've got right what's going on in terms of Chinese shutdowns and everything else causing PMIs to roll over. And everybody looks around, and they go, oh no, we're on the way to recession. One of the things that we've been highlighting, you know, basically from the, the last bottom that we had, which we're obviously right now, Scott, as you and I talk, trying to threaten to retest that bottom, um, is this idea of what's really important to pay attention to is rate of change. When you look at interest rates, right, interest rates basically ran like crazy until April. And then the moment the Fed raised, it raised interest rates, 50 base points, it was like a click. It was just like that classic thing when what happens, right? It's like, buy the rumor, sell the news. Once we actually saw the Fed was getting aggressive, but they weren't going to talk about 75 base points, et cetera, it was like, oh, okay, let's interest rates kind of calm down. They're basically sideways since then. Same with inflation, right? I mean, I know that we just printed, you know, a number that was, I think, 8.6% um, this morning as opposed to the expectation of 8.3. But you look at where we are with inflation and why there are reasons not to, you know, beat the drum that so many have, but that we could effectively be cresting here. And it's right, one, we've got annualization of everything that happened last year, which really inflation started to take off. And, March and April of last year to effectively, if you look at pretty much every commodity other than natural gas from the peaks in March until today, they're all basically flat, roughly flat to down, depending on which commodity you look at. So commodity inflation also has effectively basically gone from a ramp to now it's kind of sideways. And then when you look at PMIs and you talk about China and Ukraine and all the impact on that, Right. So when you think about PMIs, the whole entire idea of them, right, purchasing manager index, it's all about whether or not you're seeing an expansionary environment and they're buying more or less. And the line is always 50. Right. And so effectively, what we're talking about there is we've gotten to a point where we're, we're coming down, but we're at like 55, I think is the last PMI that I saw, still above 50. And you see plenty of times in the middle of an economic cycle that you see PMIs come in. Right. This feels like what we're seeing right now feels like a very natural mid-cycle shift in terms of leadership that we've been experiencing for the last year, but also shift in terms of in terms of the economic areas of focus. It doesn't feel like we're setting up for a recession for reasons that I'm sure since I've talked for about four minutes, you'll probably ask me about because you know where I'm going to go. So I'll breathe and let you talk. <laughs> well, you know, actually, before you go there, I, I have read on a few occasions uh, an idea, you, you could refer to it as the rotation, but, but basically the idea that for the last approximately dozen years, mm-hmm. uh, we have been in a market cycle that favored rate reduction, favored technology. And what we need to get is our head around the reality that that leadership, I think is the word you just used, is changing. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, when you think about it, when you have a race to the bottom on rates, structurally, the core thing that happens to get into the gory details of how discount rates and DCFs work is what happens is the cash flow further out becomes more valuable than it used to be. And so what happens is all these high growth names, you know, you talk about SaaS companies, you talk about startups, you talk about any of these kind of names, even right, all these asset light business models that are all about you scale and then you know you own the market in 15, 20 years. Well, all those companies are insanely valuable when you basically have a discount rate of zero. So you can wait for that cash flow to happen. But effectively, when you're starting to, to raise rates, what and so let me say this. So what happened there is because of that, you had this problem that you could argue that there was certainly, we can all agree, if you just look at what happened in the last two to three years and what happened from bottom of March until call it middle of last year, tail end of last year, 
you get some weird funky capital allocation things happen where you get too much money flowing into these asset light business models. And instead, everybody basically saying, we're not going to spend on CapEx. We're not going to invest in our businesses um, in terms of hard assets because let's just go asset light. How do we get to be the SaaS model? How do we get that? And so we've had an underinvestment in assets. And one of the big things that, you know, that we're seeing as a fulcrum, right, we call it either the CapEx or the supply chain super cycle is, right, as, as, as we've had this shift in terms of consumption to consumption being more towards goods, what we're also seeing is this shift in terms of understanding that, wait, hold on, we need to actually be focusing on cash flow opportunities that are closer to now because interest rates are going up. So the DCF value of those further off cash flows is less. And all that's part of what we think is, if you will, the next phase of leadership in the market, why we think instead of being software and, and uh, communication services, it's going to be areas like um, tech hardware, areas like industrials, areas like some specific niches of, you know, the commodities that really are short duration cash flow opportunities, but also areas that are potential beneficiaries when we start getting CapEx going. Now, I, I've got, got to ask you to expand upon short duration cash flow opportunities. Uh, investors don't like the idea of short term anything, you know, they're in for the long haul. So could you unpack that and explain um, uh, what you meant by short term? Yeah, absolutely. And right, all investors say that they're long term, but show me an investor who doesn't react to a quarterly earnings call. Um, But so the uh, so when you look at it in terms of what we talk about short duration, it really does come to that idea of the DCF. Like a great example of this is a pharma company. Right. The reason why pharma has done so well the last you know, couple of months, and especially the last, let's say, two to three months, is because everybody looks at pharma and they go, cool, I understand that I don't love the fact that you basically have a finite period of cash flows, but holy cow, in a rising rate environment, am I loving the fact that I'm getting those cash flows from you sooner? And when I say sooner, I don't mean in the next quarter. I mean, I've got seven years of cash flow visibility. I'm not basically you know, sitting here and waiting for... I don't know, name a, you know, name a SaaS company to basically turn to cash flow positive in, you know, five years and betting on that going on. And that's, that's the distance, the difference that we're seeing in terms of, right, short duration cash flows as opposed to long duration cash flows. So what you're, what you're describing is, is, is very rational and understandable. It makes perfect sense. And when the rate environment reverses and starts going up, I won't, won't say normalizing because I, I do think we are in a prolonged period, maybe forever, where interest rates, the cost of money is much lower than it has been historically. But um, should should we have all been clued in, I don't know what the time frame was, let's say a year ago, where we're all arguing about companies trading at 40, 50, 60 times sales? <laughs> should we have been smarter back then and known that uh, we were in a bubble and that it was destined to burst? Well, I mean, not to take a victory lap, Scott, because I mean, certainly there were plenty of names that we liked that were down big, but there's a reason why when we really basically the middle of last year, one, we started for all of our, all of our subscribers, we started deprioritizing, talking about anything that was what we call at-home revolution stuff and anything that was, you know, really the software type names and really started talking about, I remember you know, is basically, I want to say between June and September last year, we really started hammering this idea of the, what we call the CapEx or the um, supply chain super cycle and saying, look, hard assets are where we should be focusing now because we are in a shifting sands in terms of one, not just really where interest rates were going, but we're also saying, look, in terms of where the next leg of this market possibly can come from. 
Um, and so, you know, for to a certain extent, we actually, we've been talking about this for, um, you know, our readers for a good solid at this point, point nine to 12 months because of exactly what you're talking about. All right. So let's go back to the, you know, the, the idea of short-term and long-term. Uh, the CapEx reshoring catch-up um, that, that I think we're seeing, you know, we're, we're moving. I, I won't say that we're, it's a deglobalization, but we, we may have been at peak globalization and uh, international trade. The, the, the world is a little bit more split now between what, you know, what I would call the Western democracies and the, the countries, China and Russia, that have set themselves up in opposition to the model of the Western democracies. So I, th- I think that we're going to see a, a less trade in, the, of course, the logistics issues that we faced over the, the last two years, I think have taught us a lesson just in time isn't always the, 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 the best model. Uh, the point that I'm driving to is I don't see it as a short-term thing. I'm thinking it's probably in terms of decades of above, way above recent, but above normal investment in infrastructure. Um, uh, well, you can probably articulate it a lot better than I'm trying to. There's going to be a lot of building and I've called out one thing on the uh, on the breakout platform. If you if you just look into what it would cost to build the to upgrade the electronic transmission infrastructure in this country, to enable the defossilization of our economy, I, fr- frankly, I don't th- I don't think it's possible. And you 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 see the impossibility of it when you just start looking at what it would cost just to improve the transmission lines. The point, the point ultimately being there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And, and I've been looking for companies that are, companies I've, I've probably never heard of that are in the business of building big things. You know, for instance, who's building these, uh, uh, these natural gas liquefaction facilities in Houston? Who builds this stuff? Who's gonna be building all of the semiconductor uh, facilities multi-billion dollar uh, plants that are coming into the U.S. I I understand that there's a multi-billion dollar electronic vehicle plant being built outside of Atlanta and Savannah. So Mm -hmm. this is this is just my musings. And again, you'll get more granular with it. But what's the, the the leadership going forward for how long, where, what should people be keying off of and trying to get smart of to be ahead of the curve? Yeah, of course. And right. I think that I mean, the the term super cycle is overused because everybody loved it so much when China basically drove that um, that super cycle in terms of commodity super cycle in the, you know, call it the mid 2000s. But I think this is a situation where you're exactly right, where using the term super cycle is appropriate. And the reason why is because this is a this will need to be a multi-year investment cycle. Right. I mean, one of the big things that we do um, is when we're doing our macro work, not just our individual company work and looking at the uniform accounting stuff that we look at, is specifically we look at things like age of assets, right? We call it our aggregate uniform accounting adjusted net to gross PPE ratio, which for all the Google got, what that basically means is, hey, the buildings and, and, and cars and infrastructure that you have, how old is it? And we are at, as of basically two quarters ago, we were at the historic low in terms of age. So Right. We normally we hovered around 58% net to gross is what it's called. We were at 
And while that sounds like that's not that big of a difference, that is a massive difference when you think about it. That's a that's well in excess of five hundred billion dollars of underinvestment. It's actually way way bigger than that. But just in terms of the last few years, the underinvestment was five hundred billion dollars just for U.S. corporates. We just started seeing that tick up in terms of that investment cycle. But I mean, we've basically got years and years of investment to make up just to get there. And so and it's relevant to say, you know, none of this is is talking about, you know, oh, it's whether or not the government infrastructure plan actually gets deployed or any of that, because people hear infrastructure and they get caught on. This is corporate infrastructure. And I agree with you, Scott. Some of this is because the balkanization that's happening with, uh, you know, with truly, you know, a, a multipolar world. But a bigger part of it is actually this other thing that's happening, which is structurally, we have changed how we consume. Um, right. And the whole entire idea of what happened with, with as we call it, the at-home revolution, but basically the acceleration of trends that happened because of um, because of the pandemic is even though right right now people are doing more trips and everything else. When you look at the base levels of how much of consumption in the U.S. comes from consumption of goods versus consumption of uh, services, we have had a level step change. And so because of that, exactly to your point, when you talk about just-in-time solutions and everything else, that doesn't work when you have this huge level step change in terms of a new plateau shift. And so what a lot of companies are looking at now, you know, Generac is a great example of this. You know, Generac's got multi-quarter levels of backlog now. And so they look at that and they go, wait a second, again, talking about short duration opportunities, they go, wait a second, if I build a factory in the next three to six months, I can make a lot more of these and make a lot more money faster. And, I'm, and, and effectively, I'm going to have more demand after this because I can see that the shift in spending of how people are thinking about it. There's so many different goods that that's happened. So it's not just the idea of reshoring to fix supply chains. It's that supply chains, to your point, can't be JIT anymore. They need to be a lot fatter in terms of bandwidth. And because of that, companies need to build more redundancies and everything else. And they're realizing this. And that's why you're seeing that investment. And that investment, where does it come from? Like I said, I think that you kind of hit on what you said. You said... Who are the companies who are building the LNG plants? Who are the companies of that? And, and our response would be, who cares which CNI firm is building? Let's find the little stupid things that are gonna, gonna go into every single one of those little, every single one of those plants that they build. Um, you know, what are the kind of wires or the, you know, the conduits that transport wires that are gonna, gonna go there? What is the equipment that's gonna be rented, right? That's gonna go there. That's why we like names like United Rentals. I know that's not a microcap name, but right. United Rentals is gonna make money no matter who's building what, if we're spending CapEx because you need to rent their stuff. And so it's thinking about things like that in terms of what are the, to use a, you know, say, what are the pickaxe sellers or what are the gatekeepers or what are the, you know, the arms dealers, you know, just to be, to be glib that are going to win no matter who is actually doing stuff. And those are the really interesting companies to us. All right, well, that's ahead of the curve. Is that the kind of stuff uh, you guys are writing about on uh, Valens and uh, Altimetry right now? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when you look at the names that we're recommending, we're really zeroing in on you know two big themes. One is that whole entire theme of the, I'll call it CapEx or supply chain super cycle. And the names that specifically benefit from that, because they are the arms dealers, they are the you know the pickaxe sellers. And the other thing that we're zooming in on now is you know is is effectively actually we just published a piece um, for one of our um, one of our subscription newsletters on Altimetry um, just earlier this week on a really interesting oil and gas equipment and services name, which we think you know when you think about oil and gas, there's this funky way that it's an extension of everything that we're talking about here. Um, for this exact same reason, because it's a it's a pickaxe seller. It's the one that's gonna you're gonna need no matter who's drilling where, because we're about to see a lot more drilling in the U.S. 
All right. Well, we have uh, laid down some anchors for some fascinating conversations in the future. At the beginning of this, I uh, said that we would talk about some specific names, and I, I sent you a short list. Uh, we've got four names to uh, talk about real quickly, and the first one is harmonic, which is the subject, I think, of one of our mm-hmm. more recent calls. Could you update uh, the community on harmonic? Yeah, I mean, when you look at how harmonic is executing... So the whole entire thesis for Harmonic, for, uh, for those who don't remember, is effectively you look at this company and what's really compelling about it is it effectively is benefiting from two massive tailwinds in the market. One is whether or not which streaming service wins doesn't matter. We are consuming more of our content through streaming services than classic cable. The other huge thing is just in general, which streaming is one of the reasons why it's like this, there is a massive consumption of more bandwidth in the uh, uh, in basically across the U.S. and across the world. And they're helping solve both of those issues, right? Issue one, what they're solving is they effectively are the platform that you can do streaming on. Issue two is they're helping people like Comcast make their data centers more cost efficient, and more bandwidth efficient, um, and basically sell a solution to be able to do that. Well, you look at the most recent quarter and this company continues to execute on everything that made it so interesting to us, right? You had a company that saw Revenue is growing by basically a third. Um, you saw a company that in its cable access business, which is the business that effectively sells a virtual version of the solutions that let people like Comcast be more efficient, that effectively is turning Harmonic from being a hardware business into a software subscription business. That business grew by 100%. And on the video streaming side of things, right, their, their SaaS revenue they have there basically was up almost, almost 100%, 75%. Every single thing that they talk about, they're executing on. And that's where we're seeing our uniform return, a uniform accounting return on assets continue to expand. Um, and we think that this one is still one that has plenty of room to run because the market still hasn't wrapped its mind around exactly what's going on and how transformative everything that's going on for Harmonic is. That was a uh, great refresh. Uh, the second name I asked if you would talk about the name most important to the breakout community. I recently did a survey and learned that 75% of the respondents are current shareholders in Smith Micro. Uh, what uh, what do your tool sets uh, tell you about Smith Micro? Absolutely. You know, Smith is interesting. I'll be honest. We learn a lot about Smith by, um, you know, by, by having conversations with people in the breakout world. Um, and, you know, the the interesting thesis with Smith that we always thought was, a relevant way to think about it is that right Smith has effectively done what it's doing now before. You all know what the story is about Smith. So what I'll actually jump in is just looking at what it is from our uniform accounting perspective. And when we look at it, what's really interesting is you've got a company that I just easily like to compare Smith today to what Smith did when it had the last kind of huge boom of carriers absorbing its stuff, um, which is back in the, the back half of um, the Two, uh, the 2000s, right? So before the 2010s, where it was kind of on a island and everything else. At that point, Smith had uniform accounting return on assets that were north of 20 to 30%. Right now, the market is pricing Smith Micro for around 8% return on assets. That's what it did in two, on average through 2018 through 2021 with some good years and some bad years. And that's before everything that, you know, that everybody on the breakout um, investors group talks about in terms of being a potential catalyst for the name. And so when we look at it, we say, look, you know, there are questions right now in terms of people are nervous about execution and everything else. And how long are we going to have to wait to be able to see the kick in from things from, you know, AT&T, Verizon, et cetera, in terms of subscriptions. 
But what we look at is at, at the levels that we're at now, the name has effectively been completely de-risked, right? To use an investment term. There's no real concern that you have a ton more downside because of how cheap it is. And once you actually start seeing those numbers flow through for the name, you know, you could see names, you could see the company take off. Um, so it's still one that we think we have on our radar. Um, and it's one that we definitely think that, you know, just waiting for the uh, the right signal to inflect to basically give people conviction and give a, and give everybody conviction and the name should take off. Fantastic. Uh, I give you two more names since we uh, did two more or less technology companies. Let's do Air first. What do you think of Air Test? This is one that I'll say, um, you know, one we are not as close to, but I just quickly, when you send it to me over like two to five minutes, thumb through what it does and, you know, just try to get analogies. The first thing I'll say for um, air test is, right, just in the space that it's in, one, obviously, being semiconductor, um, I'll call it testing equipment. I know it's not exactly what it is, but, you know, one of the things when we talk about this idea of the CapEx or supply chain super cycle is, you know, it's when, 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 I, when we say that people probably think it's just digging holes in the ground, it's, you know, building factories and it's building all this other stuff. Well, in reality, when you look, and I don't know if any of you have, you know, um, if anybody who's listening has ever worked in industrial machinery or anything, but having worked, you know, in a former life, even at Gillette and, um, a long, long time ago, already back then, they were thinking about things in their shaving equipment um, factory of, you know, counting number of units as things went through their machines and all this other stuff and how everything was wired. And more and more, you're seeing that happen. So when we think about this idea of infrastructure spend and CapEx spend and supply chain investment, it's going to be smart, if you will, what we call Internet of Things or smart investment. And that means a lot more of the kind of stuff that this equipment is used to test. So we actually like the macro tailwinds for the name. The one thing that we would say about air, air test, though, is, you know, you've got a company that is forecast on an asset basis and, and I think on a revenue basis to basically double this year. But you've got a company who has never other than three years in the last 15 had a positive uniform accounting return on assets. And effectively, this year, it's supposed to be 6% for the first time in a while. The market is already pricing this company, you know, assuming that you're going to continue to see, and I don't know what the right number is here, but let's say you're thinking you're going to see 20% asset growth going forward. Um, you're pricing this company to basically have ROAs double further from here. So doubling of profitability and continued growth that says you're going to double every, call it three years and change, um, which, you know, looks a little lofty to us, but again, we're not close to the name, just giving you a reaction based on how we would initially vet a name ourselves before we really dug in. I love the sanity check. Thank you very much. And that leads us perfectly into the last one, which is Quipped. Quipped is a very popular name and, and there's, um, there's a strong sentiment within the community of people who are just uneasy about its growth through acquisition. It's, it's conducting a roll-up in the uh, home healthcare space around uh, respiratory equipment. How does it look at uh, using your tools? Interesting. Yeah, and that's helpful in terms of context, in terms of what's going on for the, for the name. So, I mean, you look at it in 2019 and 2020, you had a name that basically saw return on assets, uniform accounting return on assets that it inflected positively. So this company, just for context, I know on a national border basis, it was actually losing money all the way up until 2021. It was actually making money all the last three years, even when we make all the adjustments that we make around accounting. The really interesting thing is on a uniform accounting basis, it's forecast to have a really big inflection and in profitability the next two years. Um, and here's the thing, if that's right, um, and you assume organic growth for this business is probably, I'm going to call it long run GDP times two, let's say it organic growth, not inorganic acquisitive growth. So we say 6% asset growth. 
right? You're looking at a company where this year is forecasted to have 14% return on assets and the market's effectively pricing it to have 11% return on assets going forward. So if you think that, if you think the inflection is real, the market's basically pricing what it's doing in 2022 in, but it's not pricing any potential incremental upside as it scales. And a lot of these, if you look at, you know, the, the bigger versions of this business, I'm not going to say it's a perfect comp, but like, for instance, Emetisys, Emetisys and some of the other guys on a uniform accounting basis, they have uniform return on assets the last couple of years, that's 50%. Um, and so just looking at that as a, maybe that's a comp, maybe that's not, but if it's home health, we think about that as, you know, those are very profitable businesses when they get scale and get up and running. So as long as it doesn't do anything to shoot itself in the foot with the acquisition scenario, the market's not pricing that in. So if you think it's real, there's a lot of upside left. Fantastic. I, I hadn't thought of it uh, as a resource to ask you cold, but considering the way you guys evaluate companies, I think I think it is a great sanity check and uh, maybe something uh, we'll try to do some more in the future. Um, this has been a great call, uh, Rob, and I, I look forward to future calls with you. Uh, and uh, hopefully the market will be a lot uh, more optimistic for everybody uh, when we do. Agreed. We, we, we hope the same. We think from our data it will be, but uh, we have our fingers crossed too. And Scott, always happy to come on. So happy to be back on again sometime in the near future. All right. Well, this is uh, Breakout Ideas from Breakout Investors. This podcast is meant as an easy on-ramp to understanding the research and collaboration we do on the Breakout Investor platform, which can be accessed via the internet at app.breakoutinvestors.com or by downloading our mobile app uh, uh, for your Android or Apple phone. The Breakout Ideas podcast is syndicated and available uh, on uh, audio platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please listen, subscribe, and give us a five-star review. Thanks again, Rob. Thanks, Scott. Some or all the speakers may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. The views in this podcast expressed are those of the speakers, not Breakout Investors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Neither Breakout Investors nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information presented by this podcast and any liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, therefore is expressly disclaimed. No one on this podcast is an investment advisor. No one is providing investment advice. Before investing in any company's stock, you must do your own research. Thank you for listening.